You are listening to the EMI podcast. Coming up, bringing glory to God with our mind, soul, and body. A talk by Bob Coughlin. Tonight, I want to talk about let the people of let the people be glad, worshiping God, mind, soul, and body. Uh, it's not going to be an expositional message. I'd rather just preach to you from a text because uh, I think that's the way the Word of God should be presented. But because we're in a unique setting, it's a conference, um, we're going to be looking at a lot of scriptures that are going to help us understand what it means to bring glory to God with our minds, our souls, and our bodies. What comes to mind when you hear the word worship says a lot about you. You know, A.W. Tozer has a book, uh, that begins, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Well, I s- kind of stole that, revised it. What comes to your mind when you think about worship, when you hear the word worship, says a lot about you. You might think of singing led in a massive arena by a band, usually a good-looking band. You might think of singing accompanied by a piano, organ, and a choir. You might think of a feeling of intimacy and emotion at a certain point in time when you're singing. And you, you hear that when people say, make comments like, well, you know, I went to the to church, the service on Sunday, and, uh, you know, it wasn't until about the third song that I began worshiping. And I'm thinking, what were you doing the first two songs? Just, well, I guess we were just singing. So, so it's this something happens, and that's, that's kind of what they're thinking. Fourteen years ago, when I became the director of worship development for Sovereign Grace Ministries, which is a title I gave myself, because no one really knew what I was doing, least of all me, uh, I began to study worship. And if I knew what I know, if I knew then what I know about worship now, I probably would have not have called myself the director of worship development, but that's the title I have. But I began to study worship. And I began to see that my understanding of worship and my practice of worship was not as biblical as I thought. And one of the things I first came to realize, and this was primarily through reading Engaging with God by David Peterson, who I thank God for, we translate a number of Hebrew and Greek words in Scripture with the one word, worship. And taken together, these words communicate both attitudes and actions that are characterized by things like reverence and submission and service and awe and praise and gratefulness and trust and love. It's speaking of our whole relationship with God. You see something of that in Deuteronomy 10, 12 and 13 when Moses says, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. We see something similar in Romans 12, verse 1, where the word worship is applied to all of life. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or your reasonable worship or your understanding worship. In other words, Paul is saying that it's not just about a song. It's not even just about a meeting. It's about your entire life. It's about everything you do that would fall under the category of worship. And we see a similar thought in 1 Corinthians 10.31, where Paul says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. What we know is this. When it comes to bringing glory to God, when it comes to worshiping God or praising God, He doesn't only want us to exalt Him in our minds. And He doesn't only want us to exalt Him in our emotions. Or only in our bodies. He wants all of it. As one person said, Worship is all of me responding to all of who God has revealed Himself to be. 
All of me responding to all of whom God has revealed himself to be. So I want to talk tonight about worshiping God, praising God, glorifying God as it involves our minds, our souls, and our bodies. And we're going to focus on what we do when we gather. I could make this a broad um, message that addresses the broader description, or definition of worship, but we're going to focus on what we do when we gather, when we gather to sing songs of praise to God. Because in the Old Testament, what the Israelites did when they gathered was meant to both reflect and shape what they did in their daily lives. And the same is true of us. What we do when we gather is both meant to flow out of what we, the way we live and influence the way we live. So we're going to spend our time focusing on just, just what we do as we seek to give God praise when we gather. And I'm going to start with worshiping God with our minds. Now, I know we've been singing for an hour, and our minds could be a little sluggish right now. So try and stay with me. Try and stay with me. Once I heard a speaker at a conference ask everyone to, on cue, shout out the name of their denomination. So we're going to do that here. And we'll, okay? One, two, three. Okay, good. And then he said, all right, again, on cue, I want to you to shout out the name of the Savior of the world. One, two, three. Jesus. Okay, now this is what he said next. You see, doctrine divides. Jesus unites. That's not a good conclusion. And you know why it's not a good conclusion? <laughs> because doctrine is what helps us to know Jesus. And when we all say the name Jesus, when a, when a crowd says the name Jesus together, we may not all have the same idea or understanding of who Jesus is. Now, he wasn't the first person in history to pit doctrine and a true knowledge of God against each other. And he won't be the last. And to be clear, knowing information about God is different from actually knowing him through that information. So Jesus said to the Pharisees one time in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So that's a sobering thought, that we can know a lot about Jesus and not actually know him. That's a sobering thought. But the fact that doctrine is distinct from knowing God doesn't mean they aren't connected. God reveals himself to us through the truth. And if we love God, if we truly love God, we will want to know him better. We'll want to find out what he's really like and not be content with impressions or our own opinions or our own experiences. A man named Michael Horton wrote a book called A Better Way. And he wrote this, Vagueness about the object of our praise inevitably leads to making our own praise the object. We start to pray, we start to worship our worship. We start to be passionate about our passion. Praise therefore becomes an end in itself. And we are caught up in our own worship experience rather than in the God whose character and acts are the only proper focus. Amen. And may it not be so among the Christians of Sydney or anywhere else in Australia. As Christians, God calls us not only to love him, but to love the truth about him. John 17, 3, Jesus says, This is eternal life, having a lot of mus musically inspired emotional experiences. No, he didn't say that. He said, This is eternal life, knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ, the one he has sent. We worship the one who is the truth, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and who claimed that the truth would set us free. The truth would set us free. Not musical experiences. The truth would set us free. God wants everyone to come to a knowledge of the truth, says in 1 Timothy 2.4, and he reveals his wrath against those who suppress the truth. 
who keep others from knowing what the truth about him is. Jesus said he would send the spirit of truth and asked God to sanctify his disciples in the truth, which is his word. God is all about truth, knowledge, reality, the way things really are, and we should be too. So that means the better or the more accurately we know God through his word, the more genuine our worship will be. And that's in contrast to many of many understandings of worship today. We think that worship involves not thinking, not, not really knowing what's going on, just having a transcendent experience. And the Bible says no. Not that singing praise to God can't be a transcendent experience, but all transcendent experiences are not worshiping God. We must know Him. And we must use our minds to know Him. That's why worshiping God as we sing His praise must engage our minds and our understanding. We are articulating, declaring, understanding, and valuing the truth about God, especially what He's done for us in Jesus Christ. So I could go on, but that's all we're going to cover for, for glorifying God with our minds. What are we supposed to do with the truth about God? Is the goal just to know more and more and more and more and more about God and Jesus, just to read more books, just to have a library that could fill this hall and say, well, I just, I just know everything about, about God. That's, and that's what I do until I die. I'm just going to know more and more and more and more and then I die. And then I'll see the one that I know so much about, but I don't know so much about him already, so it won't be a surprise or anything. Is that the goal? I mean, some people live as though that is the goal. They speak as though that is the goal. It's not the goal. Because God wants us to worship Him with our souls as well. Not just our minds, but our souls. Psalm 103.1 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. And let me say, as a musician... I was a classically trained pianist. I've loved music all my life. As a musician, you know, I'd rather just like stick with this one, the soul, yeah, the emotions, the experiences. That's why I've pressed so hard to, to get the first one, knowing God with my mind. But what I haven't wanted to do is so emphasize the first part that I just totally neglect this part. God wants us to worship Him, to glorify Him with our souls. The Crago Dictionary of the Bible and Theology defines soul as the seat of the emotions, the desires, passions, and experiences. Now, I know some of us get a little nervous when we hear start talking about experiences. But God is a living God. He deals with our hearts. He deals with our souls. And in the Bible, we're, we're told to pour out our souls to God. Psalm 42, 4. Psalm 25, 1. We're told to lift up our souls to God. Psalm Deuteronomy 6, 5. We're to love Him with all our souls. Psalm 34, 2. We, our souls make their boast in Him. So our souls are all doing all this stuff in relation to to God. See, it's one thing to know true things and declare true things about God. But the devils do that. James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the devils believe and shudder. So that's not enough. It's not enough just to know what's right, to know what's true. God wants us to cherish and treasure the truth about Him because He wants us to cherish and treasure Him. Psalm 37, 4. It's a command. Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Think of some of the things that you delight in. I delight in chocolate. It's one of the things that I delight in. Dark chocolate, if you're interested. <laughs> I, I, I delight in a lot of things. The, the beauty of God's creation, my wife, my family. Above all, God says, delight yourself 
in me. 1 Peter 1.8, speaking of Jesus, Peter says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. God wants our souls involved, not just our minds. I think that's what Paul is getting at in Ephesians 5.19 when he says that we're to sing and make melody to the Lord with all our hearts. That does not mean we gather together and as the music starts, we are there. What are you doing? Making melody to the Lord with my heart. Don't you think you should use your voice too? Nope. Because Paul says, make melody. Obviously, that's not what he's saying. It means that our voices, the songs we sing, are to flow from our hearts. They're to be the overflow of our souls. And God takes no pleasure in singing His praise in worship that isn't connected to the heart. Matthew 15, 8, Jesus rebukes those who are listening, he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So does that mean every time we gather and we start singing that like my heart's got to be just like all on fire for God? Well, well, no. There are times when our souls aren't lining up with what our minds know. When we aren't affected by God's greatness or His goodness. When we're just not moved by the fact that Jesus came to endure God's punishment for our sins, offer Himself as our substitute so we could be reconciled to God. It just doesn't move us. So what do we do then? Well, John Piper helps us on this thought, on this topic. He says this, This does not mean that worship is authentic only when you are red hot for God. It can mean that when you are not red hot, your heart feels a longing for the passion that you once knew or want to know more of. That longing offered to God is worship. Or it can mean remorse that even the longing is gone and you are scarcely able to feel anything but sadness that you don't feel what you should. That remorse offered to God is also worship. It says to God that He is the only hope for what you need. So don't have an all-or-nothing attitude about worship. The heart can be real even if it is not as inflamed with zeal as it ought to be, which it never is in this life. So we're never totally as engaged with our souls as we will be one day. But God commands us, delight yourself in the Lord. The bottom line is that God never intended our relationship with Him, our praise of Him, our worship of Him, to be confined to merely an academic or intellectual activity. Where feelings for God are dead, worship is dead. Mind, soul, let's look at body. Most of us are doing pretty well up to this point. Worshiping God, mind, so I get that, mind, yes, think, No truth, got it. Soul, heart, emotion, yes, engage, got it. Body. All right, I'm ready. I'm ready. There's a lot of problems that comes when when we start talking about what what's the play. What what are we supposed to do with our bodies, like when we get together? Like we know what to do outside, you know, we serve, we greet, we love, we, we help, we, we, you know, do those things. What about in here? What, not in here, but when we gather as the church, what do we do? Like, what's the place of expressiveness? Does God even care what we do with our bodies? And if he does care, what does he want us to do? Well, that's what I spend the next few minutes talking about. But before I get into that, I want to be clear. What's going on in our hearts matters a lot more than what we do with our bodies. 
And whether or not we're obeying God in our daily lives is more important than any particular physical expression when we gather. And singing rich, doctrinal, theologically profound truths in a physically unexpressive congregation is far superior to jumping around jubilantly with a lively congregation belting out shallow man-centered songs. I want to make the case from Scripture and gently encourage those of you who are in leadership positions to say we shouldn't have to make that choice. That God never intended for us to have to make that choice. It's been interesting being in Sydney for the last week, I guess. Because I know there's a, there's a polarization that's going on. There, there are churches that are theologically conservative and preach the word and um, seek to love God with all their hearts. But in this area are pretty much non expressive. And then there are churches that are really expressive and exciting and filled with emotion and passion, but you're not so sure about what they're teaching. And so a lot of people go to this church in the morning and they go to this church at night. Okay? Now here's what I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying. Can't we just help people and, and like have one church for them to go to? Where, where you, you're really teaching the, the faithful word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, but people are enabled to respond in natural ways to the glory of God. Okay, so I'm going to, that's what I'm going to talk about. I'm, now, I'm not going to focus on daily life, as I said, which is the primary arena in which we glorify God with our bodies, but I'm seeking to address why it is that so often in the public gatherings of the church, we create different standards and expectations for glorifying God with our bodies or responding with our bodies to what's happening than we do in any other arena in life. It's just, that's, that's what I want to address. That's what I want to talk about and just think about. So what we're going to do is look at the evidences for physical expression in Scripture, the benefits of it, the limitations, and then the hindrances. So that's where we're going. And then we're going to sing. We're going to give you an opportunity to, well, you know, try this out. See, yeah. <laughs> And since this isn't your home church, like, you know, you don't have to worry about anything. It's just this is a safe place. <laughs> no one's going to be coming up to you after the meeting. What were you doing? <laughs> so distracting. <laughs> All right. Scriptural language. Okay, while worship is always first and foremost a matter of the heart, biblically it is almost never unrelated to what we do with our bodies. The Greek and Hebrew words, we most often translate worship. Hishtachava is a Hebrew word. Proskuneo is the Greek word. They both have reference to a physical action related to bowing down or bending over. It, it was a gesture that communicated an attitude of grateful submission or homage or praise that we use to describe the, the attitude of an inferior held towards a superior. Other worship words, abad in Hebrew and doulas in Greek, refer to acts of service, physical acts of service. Now, along with the worship words, we have to also have to consider the words for praise. Because that's what we're really doing when we gather together. We're coming together to praise the name of our God. To praise Him for His word and His works and His worthiness. Well, we have words like todah, which is throwing forth the hands, and Barak, which talks about kneeling. And all these words point to the fact that if we say we love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, it somehow will be reflected in our bodies, although not always, and not always in the same way. Okay, so that's some of the language. Some of the examples we have in Scripture, we have when Moses comes back to tell the Israelites in Exodus 4.31 that God has heard them, that He's remembered them, they fall down on their faces and worship God. When the Israelites are delivered from the Egyptians, they make it through the Red Sea. The Pharaoh's army comes after them. The Red Sea closes on them. What happens? Israel breaks forth in a song and dancing led by Moses. 
Nehemiah 8, 6 through 9, when Ezra is reading the law to the, the exiles who have returned to Jerusalem. We have lifting hands. We have bowing down. We have weeping. Psalms often refer to physical expression. Psalm 30, you have turned me, for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise. Glory there refers to my whole being. May sing your praise and not be silent. Psalm 5, verse 7, I will bow down to your holy temple in the fear of you. Psalm 63, verse 4, I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. I know what you're doing, Bob. You're just doing the Old Testament. Okay, here's some New Testament ones. 1 Corinthians 14, 25, the unbeliever comes into the meeting of the saints. His heart is laid bare and he falls down and says, Surely God is among you. Acts 20, 28, Paul kneels with the Ephesian elders to pray with them. Ephesians 3.14, he says, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Revelations 1.17, when John sees Jesus, he falls down. Not to mention that the Hebrews were a pretty physical culture and that God shows the Hebrews as the people through whom he would send the Messiah. So we have some language, some examples. How about some commands? Singing. We're commanded to sing. Psalm 47, 6. six. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. We have kneeling. Come, let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. We have lifting hands to bless. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. Lifting hands in prayer. I want men everywhere to lift holy hands. Bowing. Psalm 95, verse 6. Come, let us worship and bow down. Clapping, 47.1, clap your hands, all you nations. Shouting, Psalm 33, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Playing instruments, Psalm 150, 3 through 5. Dancing, Psalm 149, 3, let them praise his name with dancing. Standing in awe. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Now, one thing we want to notice is that these physical expressions are not all about exuberance. Some of them are about reverence and repentance and quiet things. Our bodies can be used to communicate a variety of emotions from joy to lament. And here's the question that a lot of people ask right at this point. Okay, we have these commands in the Bible. Like, are they to be obeyed at all times by all of God's people? Well, no. And yes. No, we're not in sin if we don't lift up our hands at a particular moment. You know, if you ever have a leader say, you know, I want everybody to lift up their hands and you're, and you're rebelling against God if you don't. They're wrong. They're wrong. That's not the way it works. But yes, there's something of the heart behind these actions and commands that God wants us to apply in our own context and culture. Now that means more than telling someone, okay, well, you just need to interpret these scriptural commands for physical expressiveness in ways that you feel comfortable with in your culture. Because that's, that's not helpful because we hold back in expressiveness for a lot of reasons, like laziness. Fear of man, selfishness, it's just uncomfortable. I just don't want to feel awkward. There's a lot of reasons that we aren't physically responsive. And we'll look at some of those shortly. Think a better question to ask than should we obey these commands all the time is this. Do our minds, hearts, and bodies reflect the overall biblical model for how we as God's people are meant to respond to the greatness and goodness of God? That's the question. Do our hearts, minds, and bodies reflect the overall biblical model, what we see in the Old and the New Testament, for how we're to respond to the greatness and goodness of God? Let me spend a few minutes talking about the benefits of physical expressiveness. Physical expression magnifies the glory of of God. Well, how can you say that? What do you mean by that? Well, this is what I mean. I've already spoken of my wife, Julie. My wife and I take a date night 
every Monday night. We have for the last 25 years, approximately. 20, 25 years. Almost every Monday night. Didn't take one last Wednesday night, Monday night, because I was in Australia. <laughs> if you came by while I was sitting at a table with my wife on date night, and you saw this, just, I was just kind of distracted, emotionless. Just kind of looking at my iPhone. You, you would say, Julie's not having a very good time. Because, or, or he must not like her, or they're, they're, are, you, are, you, are they doing okay? You would infer something from my physical actions, would you not? Because that's happened to me once. I was at a date night, we were on date night, and someone saw, saw us through the window and asked me later, Are you okay? So, so embarrassing. But that's not what happens on our date nights anymore. <laughs> when I'm with Julie and you saw me with Julie, I would be hugging her, I'd be showing her affection, I'd be looking at her longingly. I would, you, you would know, I'd smile at her, I'd engage her in conversation, and you would know by my actions with her how much she means to me. And what I would be doing is, not intentionally, but this is what would be the effect, I would be magnifying her worth in your eyes. You would think, by my actions, he really loves her. That's because I really do. And I look for ways to show her. If she walked in the room right now, I would get off the stage and go kiss her. But she's not going to do that, so it's okay. But I, I would do that because that's the way I would naturally respond to, to the person I love more than anybody in the world. So we magnify the worth of God through our bodies. We can say to those around us, My God is so great that I want to use my mind and my soul and my body to, to show you how great He is. It's the attitude, I believe, of the psalmist in Psalm 108, verse 1 and 2. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. Not just my mouth, not just my lips. With all my being. I will sing and make melody. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. He's serious about this. He wants to show people how great his God is. So we magnify the glory of God. Another benefit, we follow the scriptural example. There are many actions we think may honor God as we praise Him in song together. You know, someone might think that, you know, doing somersaults might bring glory to God. So they somersault down the aisle. You know, I'd say, you know, I appreciate your heart, but that's not in the Bible. Um, so could you not do that? I think that's a little more distracting. And so God gives us examples of what He thinks honors Him in the Old and the New Testament, what brings glory to Him. And it's really not that, that hard to understand. Um, you know, lifting of a hands means so many things in our culture. For, for a child, when they, when they lift their hands up to their parents, what is it? It's an expression of dependence. We don't need to teach them to do that. Now, Susie, when you want to, me to pick you up, do this. Lift your hand. Okay. All right, that's good. All right, no, higher, higher. Okay. All right, that's good. Yeah. We, it's natural when, when, when a, a group of people is watching a sporting event and your team scores. You don't have to tell anybody, Okay, everybody, look excited. Raise your hands. Good. Okay, that's good. Well, why would you have to tell anybody? Because they're, they're, get, they're understanding what's happening. They're seeing that something they wanted to happen has happened. And they're thrilled about it. Well, I, you know, when I s sing some of the lyrics we sing, some of the lyrics we sang tonight, it thrills my soul to recognize these things are true. And I want that to be reflected not only in here, but out here as well. Which leads to another benefit, and that is that we encourage others. We can encourage others through our physical responses. So as I'm leading and I look out, and any leader will tell you this, it's more encouraging to look and see people who look like they're engaged and like are actually knowing what they're doing as opposed to people who look like 
something has overtaken their body. <laughs> it's just more encouraging that way. And, and when I'm in the congregation uh, being led, I will often look around at people and just, I just love to see the joy on people's faces. Psalm 34, 5 says, those who look to him are radiant, their faces will never be ashamed. And I love to see that expressed on people's faces, with their hands, just, uh, it, it encourages me. We can encourage our own hearts through physical responsiveness. Expressing devotion to God physically can actually stir up affection in my own heart. Whether if my, if my soul's not quite lined up, I might raise my hands because God is worthy to be exalted. I might kneel as an act of saying, I'm dependent on God for His mercy and His sustenance and His wisdom. My feet might even, you know, do this, move for you know, joy because I can't believe that God has sent Jesus to pay for all my sins and now I'm forgiven completely. Now I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, he's an American. And that's why he can say this stuff. Uh, or, or he's an extrovert and he's just always like this. I'd hate to live with him. <laughs> really, I don't, I don't want you to hear anything but what God's Word by His Spirit says to you tonight. Really, you can leave everything else behind. The, the only thing I'm concerned about is that Jesus received great glory from His people. That, that's, that's my concern. And I know some people will hear this and say, well, well, isn't it hypocritical to like do something physically and you don't really feel it inside? No, 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 no. Hypocrisy is seeking to give others a false impression of our spirituality. Spirituality. So if I kneel down and you know, I'm in front and I kneel down, I think, oh, everybody's seen this. I am so spiritual. <laughs> okay, that's hypocrisy. Don't do that. Another concern is, oh, oh, I've heard this. This is emotionalism. And I say, no, emotionalism is a kind of shortcut to stir up our affections without really engaging the mind, without concern for why you're being emotional. It would be like if I told you when I got home, I'm going to go out on a date night, but Julie's not going. I just enjoy date nights. You'd say, You're, you don't really love your wife, do you? You're, you just like the feelings. No, I love my wife. That's why on date night, I go out with my wife. Because I love her. So it's, it's not emotionalism. God is worthy of our highest and purest and strongest affections. He is worthy. And when He is the, the focus of our attention... It's only natural that we would respond. So I was studying this and uh, came across this quote from none other than John Calvin, who was a real extrovert, from the 16th century. In his commentary in Acts 20.36, where it says that Paul knelt down and prayed with them all. So he says this, The inward attitude certainly holds first place in prayer, but outward signs, kneeling, uncovering the head, lifting up the hands, have a twofold use. So he's, he's saying that when you pray, your heart's got to be engaged, but doing something physically also makes a difference. Why? Well, the first is that we may employ all our members for the glory and worship of God. That's what I've been saying. Mind, soul, body. All our members for the glory of God. And it's nice when John Calvin lands like in the same place you are. I appreciate that. I mean, I, I'm more concerned that the Bi I land where the Bible is, but... It's nice that John agrees with me. <laughs> Secondly, that we are, so to speak, jolted out of our laziness by this help. I love that. You know, you come in, you're singing, you, th you know, you kind of make it through the songs. Okay, I'm there. You know, it, it really jolts you, it jolts me out of my laziness to, to put my hands in the air or to, to kneel down or even, even just to, to engage with, with people. It says, this is reality, this is true, this is what I live my life for, and I want to be reminded of those things. There is also a third use in Solomon public prayer, because in this way, the sons of God profess their piety, and they inflame each other with reverence of God. So it's saying we encourage each other by our physical actions. But just as the lifting up of the hands is a symbol of confidence and longing, so in order to show our humility, we fall down on our knees. 
All right, let's look at three limitations of physical expression. I'm going to run through these. Physical expression doesn't always ensure that worship or praise is taking place in our heart. We already looked at, John, at Matthew 15, 8, where Jesus rebuked those who were listening. He said, this people honors me with their lips. Their heart is from far from me. We used to call different people worshipers. Oh, Susie's a real worshiper. Oh, Tom's a real worshiper. And what we really meant was just that they, they moved their bodies when they sang. That's all we meant. We didn't know if they were worshiping the Lord or not. That, but that's how we defined it. But you can't tell. You can't tell when someone, why, what someone does with their body, whether or not their souls and their minds are truly seeking to bring glory to God. And Christians can exhibit little to no physical expression on Sundays, but have a profound love for the Savior and be living a godly life and have a deep knowledge of Scripture. So this isn't like a badge of spiritual maturity. So it can be... We can't tell everything about what's going on in someone's heart from what they do. Another limitation. Physical expressions can be self-deceiving. People have been exuberant in praising God in the corporate gathering while living in adultery, cheating on their taxes, serving the God of money. A genuine response to God can't be measured by raised hands, dancing feet, and loud shouts. We might be just caught up in the enthusiasm of the crowd. Remember the first time I ever raised my hands was at an at outdoor event uh, where they, were, they had Christian bands and it was outside. Everybody was, was responding. And so a lot of people raising their hands. I thought, I should raise my hands. I wasn't thinking about, oh, this is really big. This might you know, glorify God. Or, I just I saw everybody doing it. So I started to lift my hands. And it was like this. Oh. <laughs> and, you know, it felt like I had like 100-pound sacks on each hand. It was oh, so hard. And I think I might have gotten them to here. Maybe, you know, I don't know. But the, the, I, I had no, <laughs> there was no motivation in my heart to honor the Lord, to, to think about how worthy he was. It was just everybody else was doing it. I was just caught up. Physical expressiveness, another limitation, can be self-glorifying and self-gratifying. We can do it to try and impress people with our spirituality. So those are some of the limitations. Let me talk about the hindrances. Give you five hindrances, things that might be holding you back and, and you, you might... Uh, hopefully you'll identify with one of these. Maybe you think, yeah, that's all good. Um, we'll see. Lack of clear biblical instruction. It's a topic we often avoid. It just feels awkward. Why well, talk about it? It should be natural. But the thing is, it's not natural. The thing is, when we gather as God's people, often we don't act naturally. We act differently than we would any other place in terms of our bodies. So sometimes just hearing what the Bible says about it. Fear of man. Signs that the fear of man is present. You're convicted in this area, like you think, okay, that's really making sense, but you're not going to do anything about it. So you're not going to follow through because you're concerned what people might think. You're more mindful of the eyes of others than the eyes of God, and you think about how little you can get by with rather than how worthy God is of praise. That fear of man might be there. I read an article a while back called Dance of the Godstruck. A man named Mark Buchanan was commenting on David's bringing the ark back to Jerusalem and how he was rejoicing before the Lord with all his might. And he said this, God is not the safekeeper of our reputations. God is not some priggish domestic deity, a heavenly mismanners, intent on prescribing the etiquette that maintains polite society, aghast by any outburst of fervor. And our role on this earth, be it prophet, king, priest, or homemaker, is not to keep ourselves from embarrassment. We must come before the king, dignified or undignified, robed or disrobed, in the presence of the elite or in the company of slave girls, and worship with all our might. Another hindrance, tradition or culture. Traditions and culture can't be quickly dismissed. They are a factor to be considered, but they should be tested against Scripture. And every culture has within it numerous other cultures. So, you know, we might generalize about Americans. We might generalize about Australians. We might generalize about Brits. But you know what? There are different kinds of Australians. There are some extroverted, some introverted. So when someone says, well, that's just our culture. I say, well, I don't know. We can actually use culture to justify our fear of man, our laziness, our craving for, for not to, not to rock, rock the boat. So it's a factor, but it's not the ultimate factor. Another hindrance might be theological concerns. Just, just uh, wondering about this whole thing, you know. 
Someone says, well, what about Hebrews 12, 28, where it says, worship God with reverence and awe? Doesn't sound like you're doing that. Doesn't sound like that's what you're talking about. Well, well that verse comes right before Hebrews 13, and, and the word there for worship is latruyo, which is talking about a kind of service. And it's, it's very probable, at least consider, worthy of consideration, that that is speaking of the way we live our lives. Loving others, hospitality, remembering the imprisoned, honoring marriage. In other words, serving God with my whole life, with reverence and awe. With an awareness that God sees everything I do. But even if it refers to just a meeting, can't bowing down or lifting my hands be a sign of reverence and awe? I think it is. And we can't ignore all the scriptures that emphasize celebration and delight and exuberance all reflected through our bodies. Now, what about 1 Corinthians 14, 40? All things should be done decently and in order. Well, I think we're still talking about the same thing. Uh, Paul's referring to everything taking place in the meeting in an orderly way. We aren't talking about people running down the aisles. We're not talking about people interrupting the meeting. We're just talking about people naturally responding to the greatness of God as we sing to Him. And besides, when he says that, do everything decently in order, order he had just, just the previous verse, he's talking about prophecy and speaking in tongues. That's pretty wild. Saying now, yes, you're doing that, but do it all decently and in order. Oh, well, aren't there, aren't, aren't there, Parts of the old, aren't the things you're talking about like simply in the Old Testament sacrificial system and didn't, didn't Jesus come and, and kind of fulfill all that? Well, I think that could be arguing from silence in the New Testament, which is not the best thing to do. In other words, the Hebrew culture was, was already informed by what was in the Psalms. And so the fact that it's not as prevalent there doesn't mean that it wasn't actually practiced. And 1 Peter 1.8 says that we are to love Him with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. And you just have to ask, what does that look like on you? What does a joy inexpressible look like? I mean, it might look like this. That's fine. That's, fine. That's the joy. I suspect for a lot of us it looks like more than that. Joy inexpressible. And when we look in the book of Revelation, we see the, the, the host of heaven physically responding to the glory of Christ. All right, so if, if you have theological issues, there's some questions. Assuming that God wants to exalt him in all of life and in our meetings with our bodies, what physical expressions of praise in Scripture do you think are appropriate? If you, how do you distinguish between what's appropriate and what's not? Is singing appropriate for worshiping God, for giving praise to God? Well, yes, I think we, we would all agree. Yes, it is. Well, if singing, then why not shouting? Because they're so often referenced together in the Psalms. Just like in the same verse, Psalm 71, verse 23. I'll sing to you, I'll shout to you. Huh. What about lifting hands? You know, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise your name. Uh, I will lift up my hands. Well, how do we distinguish what's appropriate and what's not? And can physical expressiveness be learned? And I remember a time when lifting my hands was just like so hard, and now it's easy. Why don't we try it right now? You might just lift your hands. Okay, good. Just checking. All right, if physical expressiveness is primarily cultural, when are Christians called to be countercultural because of the greatness of the God we worship? He is so great. He is so good. And are there any physical expressions of worship modeled or commanded in the Bible that you've never engaged in, privately or publicly? And if so, why not? One last Hindrance is just a concern for others, and that's a valid concern. And I know some of us, many of us are in contexts where, you know, a lifted hand or kneeling down or singing loudly or a shout after a song would be like, <gasps> <laughs> you know. So you don't want to start off with like a full-fledged dance. Like this. <laughs> I, I just wouldn't advise that. Um, what, here's what we should be after. C- creating context. Meetings where people can respond in a biblically informed, natural way. No one should do anything that doesn't make sense. But I'll tell you this. No one should question whether or not we are moved by the God whose glory we're seeking to exalt. No one should wonder. 
So what does this look like? Praising God, mind, soul, and body. As we sing, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. You, you might raise your hands to thank God that his plans for you cannot be thwarted. Thank you. Thank you. And then put them down. No big deal. As we sing, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Some might kneel in grateful adoration that all our sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus. After we sing, crown him ye kings with many crowns for he is king of all. That expression of praise and adoration might overflow into joyful acclamations as the song ends. You know what's possible to respond after a song ends? It is, really. There's no one, nothing that says, like as soon as the song is over, you have to be as quiet as a mouse. There's nothing. There's nothing in the Bible that says that. Now, it can become rote. It can become just programmed. Oh, that's what we always do. But there are certainly times when our hearts are so full and our minds are so engaged with the glory of Christ that it's just the most natural thing in the world. may feel uncomfortable at times. may look different at different times in different churches and different cultures. But there's no question that we have to help those in our congregations understand that God is worthy of our deepest and strongest and purest affections and that to glorify Him with our minds, souls, and bodies is the very reason that Jesus Christ redeemed us.